Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The train of, of geopolitics in this region is going at a massive clip. Uh, and no one is waiting for Canada, as much as Canada is a welcome participant. It's not that they, uh, that they don't want to see can- Canadian involvement, but the reality is no one's waiting for Canada to, to jump on the train and, and, and have its input. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today I'm joined by Jonathan Berkshire-Miller and Paul Chamberlain to discuss, amongst other things, Canada's recently released Indo-Pacific strategy and Canadian perspectives on some institutions like AUKUS and Five Eyes. Jonathan is a Senior Fellow and Director of Foreign Affairs, National Defence and National Security at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Paul is a PhD student at the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre and currently on leave from the Canadian Department of National Defence. He would like to note that all views expressed here are delivered in a personal capacity and not representative of the Canadian government. Welcome, Jonathan and Paul. Pleasure to be here, David. Thanks so much for hosting us, David. Well, let's let's leap into it. Uh, talking about Canada, talking about Australia, we're fellow members of the Commonwealth, we're large by area, we're relatively small by population, got big mineral and agricultural resources and a pretty forbidding environment. I mean, did the similarities stop there? I mean, I, I suspect most people in Australia won't have a great understanding of Canada beyond these kind of sweeping generalities and, and probably even less so when it comes to defence and foreign policy. So perhaps as we start to contextualise things a bit, um, could you give our listeners a quick pricey on how the world looks from Canada? Are there any key pillars to Canada's strategic outlook or strategic culture? Perhaps I'll start with you, Jonathan. Okay, well, thanks so much, uh, David, again, for hosting us and, you know, shining some light on this really important issue to the Australian audience. And frankly, I'm happy that we can even have a discussion on Canada and its strategic role, its uh, positioning in the Indo-Pacific. Those of us, uh, um, Paul and myself, the two on this podcast, have been talking about this, hoping and anticipating that Canada would strategically rethink about uh, its uh, position in the Indo-Pacific for several years. So, as a first point, I think it's just I'm just happy that we're able to finally get to a position where we're we're actually talking about a strategy that's been released. Um, and to give you a bit of an anecdote before answering your question, um, I think that if you think about many of the countries in the world that have released Indo-Pacific strategies, and I think back uh, to uh, almost a year from uh, today, I was in the Netherlands 
Uh, and the Netherlands is is one state in Europe that has an Indo-Pacific strategy. And I remember last year they were saying, uh, geez, we don't even have a Pacific coastline. Um, we're not in the G7, uh, yet we have a Indo-Pacific strategy. And Canada, this you know, expansive country with a, with a massive Pacific coastline, uh, with in so many of the multilateral clubs, um, it doesn't have a strategy and why. So it, it's, you know, this is all to say that it's good that we've finally gotten there. Um, what I think, I think you're right. I mean, we share a lot with our Australian friends, uh, Canada, you know, we often make jokes that we want to be in every club. We want every point card. And I think there's some veracity to that. Um, you've listed a couple of the key clubs that we're in together uh, with Australia, of course, including uh, Five Eye, uh, APEC, uh, the ASEAN Regional Forum, etc. Um, but I think what has been interesting for me, David, about uh, this Indo-Pacific uh, uh, strategy process is that finally Canada is realizing that we need to be a bit more creative in the way that we engage, uh, the types of mechanisms that we engage. Um, and I guess this gets back to your question about uh, our strategic outlook or our strategic sort of culture, um, is that the Indo-Pacific, frankly, is not anything close to the transatlantic. And Canada traditionally has a, a sort of a comfort zone in its relationship with the transatlantic. Um, you know, sometimes it feels that many of our politicians almost feel that they were European or would prefer to be European um, uh, rather than North American. But this leads me to my point that Canada, um, while we do have a, a long Pacific coastline, a long Atlantic coastline and an Arctic uh, coastline as well, um, we are fundamentally a North American nation. Um, what does that mean and what does that not mean? Uh, it doesn't mean that we have to, uh, of course, mimic the United States foreign and strategic policy on every uh, region of the world, uh, including the Indo-Pacific, but it means that this is a everyday geostrategic reality for us in security terms, in economic terms, and in cultural terms. So that I'm happy in this strategy process that we we didn't try to, frankly, uh, copy the strategies of our European friends and say that, um, you know, Canada should have a, a progressive strategy that's the same as, as countries in Europe. That's not to say that we didn't take parts of that, but it has to be rooted in the structural reality that our um, strategic future is different from, frankly, Germany's, uh, France's, and the Netherlands. It doesn't mean that we, we don't share th some things, but I think that's one fundamental point um, above all else, is to remember where our geography is and remember uh, how that affects our choices. Is there anything you wanted to add to that, Paul? Yeah, I think that's a very tough question to start off with, David. It's uh, described the entire strategic culture of, of Canada. It's, I think Jonathan has done a great job of laying out kind of the fundamentals there, that Canada historically has been a, a transatlantic and North American continental-focused uh, state, um, for obviously very good historical reasons. Uh, the colonial um, linkages with Britain and France, of course, and the uh, Second World War, imperial linkage with Britain in the First World War, Second World War. Um, and the and NATO is really the foundation of Canadian security, and a lot of resources on the defence security side go towards that, quite rightly. Um, and NORAD, the North American Defense uh, Command, which is a binational command with Canada and the US, again, takes some vast amounts of resources and our treaty commitments of Canada to uh, to do certain things and to have certain capabilities and capacities um, applied to those organizations. So Canada is a Pacific nation, though. 
And that's something we have to remind ourselves, I think, often more than anyone else, because it's not naturally in the Canadian uh, political milieu or the uh, political conversation or, or even the defense and strategic conversation as such as it is in Canada. Um, so as Jonathan says, I would echo his remarks that we're late on having an Indo-Pacific strategy um, now that we have one. And we'll go through it, I know, later on in the podcast in a bit more detail. I think the most important fact is that it does exist and it's something we can put on the table in the in the region, in the meetings, and it does sketch out our interests and what we want to achieve and makes an attempt to uh, try and have those uh, achievements actually met and those commitments met. Um, so I would say really it's not this strategy and this document is not representative of uh, a tilt or a pivot, as we may have heard from other countries, because I think Canada's always always been in the Pacific. Um, the Korean War is a huge linkage with the with the region. Of twenty six thousand uh, Canadian troops fought in that conflict, and over five hundred didn't come back, and that is obviously a big deal in 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 our bilateral relations with the Republic of Korea. But also, I think shows our commitment to the region. We've always been in the UN command in Korea and, and stayed very strong in that relationship um, and our linkages with the rest of the uh, our very good allies and partners in the region that we can go into more detail. But I think a fundamental issue is that, yes, Canada is still institutionally within our government and with our, within the Canadian Armed Forces, Atlantic-focused and continental-focused. Um, but this strategy at least allows us to open our horizons a little, a little bit to the Indo-Pacific. Just to sort of stay on that theme for the time being, I mean, the, the whole concept or the notion of the Indo-Pacific, while it's a very familiar one in Australia and one that's been part of the discourse here for probably a decade now or more, but ultimately it's a fairly political construction. I mean, much as any uh, any, any framework of a region can be political in that way, but uh, it's becoming increasingly accepted across across the world. Um, you mentioned before, Jonathan, with the Netherlands or France or Germany. I mean, the EU itself has an um, Indo-Pacific strategy. South Korea has recently released one as well. So as that, as that um, framing of the region gains a bit more uh, prominence and, and, and substance, is this a lens that Canadian governments were already looking through but have now just formalised? I mean, you said, Paul, that there's – and obviously, you know, geographically speaking, of course, Canada is a Pacific nation. um, But I think perhaps instinctively many of us would sort of echo both of your remarks that there's perhaps more of a uh, sort of Atlantic or North American focus sort of instinctively. Um, So is is this Indo-Pacific framework, um, is that a – is that a pointed adjustment to, to use that language and that, that way of looking at the world? Um, or is this just a codification of an existing set of, uh, of behaviours? Uh, I think possibly the latter. I think the reality of, of Canada's position on that, at least within the government, when I was working in the government and the Department of National Defence in the policy division, is that uh, formerly we, had, um, we were using the term Asia-Pacific, but really, we've we've followed the trend of 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 the region and, and definitely using that term Indo-Pacific a little bit more. I think perhaps without really even thinking about it, um, and I don't want to belittle it by saying it's it's quite an academic argument because the, I am in academia now, and uh, Professor Rory Medcalf literally wrote a book on the Indo-Pacific concept here in the National Security College. So those those kind of foundational definitions are actually very important, but. 
And it was something that we discussed at the very start of this Indo-Pacific strategy when I was involved a little bit on the defense side was, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean from the coastline of Tanzania to Victoria on Vancouver Island? Because that's that's quite a chunk of, of the planet. Um, and I think the strategy does actually define the countries. I'm not sure there is an actual map in there that necessarily gives the definition, but it, but it, it talks about the certain countries that are involved uh, kind of under the strategy. So I think you can codify it as really meaning the the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean and all of the waterways and seas in between as uh, signing on to the idea that that is a strategic space um, that Canada cannot um, disentangle or dis- dis- disassociate various um, things and have an entirely different Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean naval strategy or a Western Pacific or anything. So from the maritime perspective, it's it's quite natural. Um as a, as a former policy advisor to the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, the maritime folks generally think in those big, big strategic terms anyway, because it's very comfortable to you know, for us to think in that way. So that's that's not really anything different. I think it is it is a more difficult concept for other areas of of the military and the government in a whole who are very siloed and very specific in that I have this country or that country and I don't need to know about anything else in the region or the country next door. I'm just doing my thing. I think if we can have a more cohesive or coherent would be a better word um, concept of the Indo-Pacific, I think that can help us. Um, There is a danger of getting a bit too wide and a bit too mushy. Um, But I think the strategy does a good, from a realist, realistic perspective, um, a good job of saying, okay, this is our concept of the Indo-Pacific and this is, pretty much the way we want it to look, and here's what we're going to try and do about it. Well, let me just add on to Paul's points. Uh, so I would agree, number one, um, that the, the strategic equities and interests that Canada has had in this part of the world have not fundamentally changed. So it's not that you know, five, ten years ago, um, some of these equities and interests that we will probably get into later in this podcast have, have drastically altered. Some of the challenges and threats to those interests have evolved. And I think that uh, the urgency to have a strategic document to address how to protect those those uh, interests and who to work with to protect those interests, I think uh, there was greater urgency to have uh, some sort of approach to that. Um, with that being said, I think there were a few important points. So, I, you know, I slightly uh, um, disagree with Paul on a couple things on this. The first element is that I think that, um, and, you know, perhaps Paul didn't say this, so I'm being unfair, but other uh, commentators have said this in Canada. Um, the demand signal for an Indo-Pacific strategy, I think uh, there's a perception in Canada that some of that or a lot of that came from the United States, and particularly because um, from 2016 to 2020, of course, uh, the U.S. administration reshifted its uh, its pivot and rebalance policy to a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, policy. Um, but the reality, and I don't have to explain this to an Australian audience, is that the, the intellectual origins of the Indo-Pacific concept uh, came from the Indo-Pacific. So the first point is that the demand signal that Canada saw for the Indo-Pacific framing uh, actually came from the Indo-Pacific, consistently from different voices. Um, yes, ASEAN's outlook for the Indo-Pacific is very different than uh, than Japan's uh, free and open Indo-Pacific or Australia's viewpoint or, or India's viewpoint. Um, but I think it's important to note that this is not just a U.S. demand signal that is essentially forcing the Canadian side, get serious about the Indo-Pacific, we're your biggest and only neighbor, um, and we expect you to have a strategy. So I think that's the first point. 
The second point, why I think there is a bit of a shift in this strategic thinking on the Indo-Pacific is that the perceptions of Canada, I, I, I do agree with Paul, we've been there for a while, we've been doing things um, in security terms and defense terms for, for several decades, um, but the perceptions of Canada in this region, I think, have been have been eroding uh, over the past several decades. Uh, and it's not because we're not doing anything, uh, but it's because there's no strategic narrative connecting all of that tissue. So whether it's Operation Neon, for example, um, working to uh, ensure that or, or hope that North Korea is unable to circumvent some of the United Nations Security Council sanctions. Um, Canada's contributing to that uh, mission uh, with our Five Eyes allies, Japan and Korea. Those are tangible examples, but if we don't frame that into a strategic narrative, uh, it's very difficult for us to sell that. So the perceptions is something that we're, we're really having to, to work on. Um, and one thing I've been uh, advising the Canadian side through this process uh, as they were developing the strategy is that the train of, of geopolitics in this region is going at a massive clip. Uh, and no one is waiting for Canada, as much as Canada is a welcome participant. It's not that they uh, that they don't want to see can Canadian involvement, but the reality is no one's waiting for Canada to, to jump on the train and, and, and have its input. So that's the first point. It's a competitive space. Um, the second uh, really important point, I think, for uh, why Canada, why Indo-Pacific and why not just the, um, uh, the, you know, the consistent Asia-Pacific sort of framing that we had before was actually the inclusion of India in this strategy. Frankly, for too long, and it, that doesn't mean the strategy is all about India, but there is a significant section in this strategy about India. And I think for too long, the way that we've approached uh, the region has effectively been an East Asia um, mindset. And we have a very large India uh, diaspora, and we'd probably need two or three other podcasts to get into the India-Canada relationship. But I think the important way to think about this is that for too long, we have viewed India um, in uh, in a non-regional and non-global sense. And I think that that relationship has been stuck in the bilateral weeds. So I'm hoping that this strategy also makes an attempt uh, to elevate that relationship with India and connect it, frankly, uh, to all of the other themes that we we deem important uh, in this, in this uh, relationship. The last important uh, sort of point I'll make is the prioritization that government puts on the region. So this strategy is not just a strategy in word, it is a strategy in deed, um, and there is actual real money attached to it. So it we can complain that it's not enough money, but there is $2.3 billion uh, attached to this, um, this strategy, which shows that we do have some uh, skin in the game as well. Thanks, Jonathan and Paul. That's, that's a really great overview of... Uh, I guess those those strategic perspectives um, and traditions and and interests that Canada has in the region, um, in in the Pacific and in the Indo-Pacific more broadly, um, and I think that's probably a really great segue into a discussion that's more focused on this new strategy specifically. And Jonathan, you mentioned that that India has been a big priority or a big focus within the Indo-Pacific strategy, but uh, for those out there listening who may not have dedicated the time. Uh, sort of rudely not dedicated their time to, to digging into the Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy, perhaps um, you could uh, give us a bit of an overview of what it says. Uh, what, what are the key aspects of the strategy? Are there any key objectives or outcomes that it's focused on? Perhaps do you want to give us a start there, Jonathan? 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I think um, one of the things that's really interesting and instructive about this strategy, I find, and I'm, you know, uh, having conversations with those who are not seen as principal states in the Indo-Pacific, for example, um, you know, uh, Canadian partners in Africa, Canadian partners in the Americas. And I instruct them that uh, don't overlook this strategy. Um, don't view this uh, as a Canada drifting its attention to the Indo-Pacific. I think there's a big element of that. But one of the things that Canada frankly, has not done the greatest job of for several years is articulating its strategic viewpoint um, in any key documents, uh, be that uh, a foreign policy white paper, uh, our national security strategy, for example, is, is, is very much out of date. Um, I will give credit to our uh, defense colleagues that they're working on a defense policy update. Uh, but the reason I mention that across the across government is that if you look at the pillars, which I'll get into a little bit, that are included in this strategy, they're instructive more broadly on Canadian foreign policy and security thinking, uh, and not just exclusively on the Indo-Pacific. So, of course, they play in the Indo-Pacific, but they would also play in other parts uh, of our engagement. Um, so some of these these uh, interests include, obviously, peace and security, uh, uh, promoting trade and investment. Canada remains, uh, due to the United States' uh, own withdrawal from uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we remain the, the second biggest economy in that, in that uh, trade pact after Japan. Um, there's also a, a focus on climate issues, of course, and energy security. Um, and the final two sections are really interesting because I think this is going to be the crux of, of how the future of this strategy works. One of them is focused on people, frankly, um, not only the diasporas we, we touched on a little bit um, uh, earlier, whether it's the Indian diaspora, whether it's the Chinese diaspora or the Vietnamese diaspora in Canada, leveraging that in the right way, but also making sure that we have the right people in our bureaucracy, uh, in our provincial governments, um, and in many different stakeholder groups uh, to succeed in this part of the world. So investing in people is one of them. And the last point, which I think really will uh, hinge on the success of this strategy, is the way that we engage. Um, this goes back to, I think, a point Paul and I were discussing at the onset of this discussion is that the, the comfortable, uh, old comfortable shoe for Canada, I think, has been multilateralism. And that's not to say that that uh, multilateralism is irrelevant in this part of the world. But I think what we're realizing is that we can't have a Brussels-style uh, expectation of engagement in the Indo-Pacific and be successful. So Canada is going to, frankly, have to be uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable with what uh, what uh, traditionally has been their strategic sort of go-to, um, which is uh, uh, to conduct their uh, policy through multilateral uh, architecture. So I think that's going to be one of the key challenges. And, it, and just a closing point on this, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm advocating that Canada signs up in, as the fifth member of the Quad or the, you know, uh, the fourth member of AUKUS, and we change the acronyms. I do think, uh, if, if we want to get more into those details, that they could play into both of those agreements. Um, but th th my bigger point is that we need to be more creative in some of the engagements that we do. Uh, we need to think about minilateral engagements where we're hinging off uh, key partnerships uh, like Japan, uh, like the United States, sometimes perhaps like Australia as well. I think there's opportunity to do that too. Um, so that's sort of where I hope it uh, we go forward. One thing that I'd be... Um interested to, to hear about is getting stuck slightly into the sort of bureaucratic structural weeds here but uh, in 
I mean, take the US, for example, recently they had the national security strategy, which was followed then by a national defense strategy. Um, From what I understand, the British have a similar model where there's sort of a a structured tiering of um, sort of linked documents that all flow from sort of a a top level piece. Within the Canadian context, uh, there was a, um, uh, I think, a a defense policy or strategy a few years ago now. There's now the Indo-Pacific strategy. Is there going to be a series of sort of subsidiary documents that flow on from this or does this sort of stand somewhat alone and above the other uh, strategic planning documents? Uh, this was very much a, a whole of government exercise, I think, this this strategy. It was led by uh, Global Affairs Canada, um, the equivalent of DFAT here in Australia. Um, and they were working away on it for quite a, a, a while internally, um, very small team of very talented uh, uh, people. And then it became broadened out. Obviously, they knew that they would have to, you know, a, a, a regional strategies is, is more than, than just trade or development issues, even though they're very important and they needed more security and, and wider industrial buy-in and public safety and, and all kinds of uh, different departments of government have to be involved in this and uh, education, etc., and and the provincial lines as well that, that Jonathan mentions. So, in a way, I think you, you, this is a, a government of Canada strategy. It's not just a, a foreign policy kind of white paper think piece about the Indo-Pacific. Um, so, having been involved in some of the initial discussions from the defence side with our global affairs colleagues. Um, it became clear that that the defense and security piece needed to be more robust, and I think it has become so in the subsequent year that I was kind of completely out of the process. So I'm happy to happy to see that because obviously defense and security issues are very very important in the region. Um, and one of the kind of more institutional cultural things maybe that we we could have mentioned in our previous answer was the. The, the position of Canada in the, you know, Australia calls itself the lucky country, but in a way really Canada is because we're kind of out of, out of harm's way, haven't had any military conflict on our, on our territory since the war of 1812 um, without uh, American uh, friends, um, which was a victory. Um, so really since then, Canada has, has been involved in wars, but wars of choice overseas, um, much like Australia. And, and and so we've we've become quite comfortable and a little bit cozy, I think, and especially in the post Cold War era, and the peace dividend and end of history kind of uh, ideas that I think caught hold very much in Canada, and I think there's still a strain of that within within our institutions and within our public opinion. People still see Canada within Canada as inventing peacekeeping. It's all about the UN. It's all about multilateralism and. The, the world does not exist like that anymore. As Jonathan said, that kind of cozy multilateralism where Canada could kind of quite smugly go around the world and, and say, look, look at us, we're, we're happy and, uh, and, and, and rich. Why can't you just do, do what we do? And I think that message got, has gotten quite stale in the post 9-11 world, but especially in the last decade and especially in the last year or so when the hard reality, unfortunately, of the world has, has made itself clear. So, that kind of that kind of strain of, of thought within Canadian foreign policy and defence policy thinking is, is now being expunged, and now we're being exposed to, to to those realities. And I think this strategy at least recognises that. Um, 
Well, I think one part that I was struck by when when reading it was in that, and I think this is part of what you were saying earlier, Jonathan, is looking at those uh, those five key strategic objectives within the strategy, promoting peace, expanding trade, investing in connecting in people, building a sustainable and green future, and seeing Canada as an active and engaged partner to the Indo-Pacific. I mean, most of those, if not all of them, are fundamentally focused on whole of government, um, sort of broader security considerations than than just uh, the defence side, and I think that's that's absolutely a, a great sort of place to start for a whole of government strategy. And it would be interesting to see. Um, I'm not sure whether there's any plans in the strength system to, to follow a similar path and investigate it, but it does take my mind back to the um, perhaps unfortunately ill-fated Australia in the Asian Century White Paper of I think about 2012, which um, existed for only probably less than a year before the um, the defeat of the Labor government then, and it sort of then disappeared. So I'm, I'm not sure there's necessarily a lot of interest in uh, returning to something that might be seen as slightly cursed as a concept, but I, I think there's probably a lot to be said for taking that um, that that broader sweeping view and not just pigeonholing things into into hard security when really, uh, if, we, if we listen to the voices from the region, those are real concerns for them, and, and particularly for some states who are much closer to possible threats than we might be. But most of the concerns that are raised, to my understanding, are more in this space of um, whether it's you know, environmental concerns or trade and investment or people-to-people links and, and also just the idea of being an engaged partner, not um, not someone just sort of popping in on their own terms but engaging the region in, in the way that it uh, – sort of seeks to be. So in that sense, I, I found it a very um, you know, compelling approach. But Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And Jonathan mentioned it earlier that the, what, we've, what we get from, uh, from the region, uh, whenever I've been in the region as a Government of Canada representative and having spoken to, to people at various levels, it would be, of course, we like Canada. We like you guys showing up. You you, you You've got a capable navy. You got some. Uh, you got a big economy full of full of things that everybody would like: energy, water, all kinds of resources. Um, but often, the, but there's a complete lack of coherence on your strategy. Would be what I've literally been told by various officials from across this region, and therefore we don't think that you've basically got your act together. Like you know, the military will come do, and doing a certain certain thing. And then an industry or trade um, delegation will arrive and seemingly clueless as to the potential links with the defense or military visit maybe the week before in the same country. And then there'll be something else that'll be more uh, social or cultural issues. And again, all of these things might be very good and valuable in their, in their um, individually. But when pieced together, I think they can be much greater than the sum of their parts. And I think this strategy will at least prompt people to do so, even if internally within the bureaucracy in Ottawa, we need people to actually think across those departmental lines rather than kind of keep their siloed ways. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. If I might just uh, sort of dig into the into the defence weeds for uh, for a moment uh, to stick with with defence and sort of the Canadian sort of perspectives there. At uh, sort of at the time of recording, the Australian government is shortly due to hand down the unclassified version of its defence strategic review, as well as the final decision on the AUKUS submarine. Um, and uh, as it stands, Canada isn't a part of AUKUS, but there are certainly some shared platforms that. Uh, each of our armed forces use, I mean, the F-35 being uh, being one that I think Canada has recently decided to, to jump back on board the F-35 program, um, as well as both our Navy's uh, future service combatants being based on the British Type 26 design. I mean, of course, the, the Royal Navy using the same thing. So um, just to think briefly on sort of the Canadian perspectives or reactions to AUKUS particularly, um, what has been or has there been a big response from the Canadian defence uh, community? I mean, is there any particular interest in being engaged down the line, perhaps via the, the Pillar 2 or Advanced Capabilities stream, where there's been some thought of perhaps including countries like Canada or Japan? I think the uh, I think that, that second pillar of AUKUS is, would, is of interest, obviously, um, but Canada's not pushing to, to be led into the, to the club at all because we have such fantastic bilateral relations with all three partners and, and, and in many multilateral institutions such as Five Eyes and uh, and uh, within NATO, etc. So, you know, we don't need to improve our ties with the US or the UK or, or even Australia. Perhaps Australia, we did, we could um, increase our game a little bit, but they're in a different conversation. Australia has taken that strategic decision to procure nuclear submarines. Canada is is not in that conversation. So that part of AUKUS is you know, of of not of no interest to Canada, but it's uh, it's it's just not something we're involved in. I think the more the more uh, cutting edge quantum and cyber and all those kind of things, Canada makes great contributions in those areas already in various uh, fora. So I don't think it's anything about formally joining things here and there. I think there are there are mechanisms for us to to link up on on such things anyway. I would agree with a lot of the points Paul made, but just to to give a little bit of a different perspective, um, David, to your question, I, I think that the you know you asked what the sort of the defense community viewpoint is, and I think Paul uh, gave a good sort of um, synopsis of of his discussions on that. Um, the political sort of viewpoint, um, and I think the political response to AUKUS, uh, I think, was effectively uh, Canada has previously thought uh, and made significant plans actually on on nuclear powered submarines um, and uh, is not at this current time thinking about that or thinking about it in the future therefore um, you know, there's nothing to see here uh, and um, you know we have no interest in AUKUS. 
my viewpoint actually is that is an incomplete answer. Uh, and and several of the folks that I've spoken with um, in defense and security circles as well, and actually several publicly are talking about this now also, is that um, this is sort of missing the broader point. I think one of the elements is what Paul uh, rightly pointed to, is that there it's not just the nuclear submarine element, it's quantum, it's defense technology, it's, it's many cutting edge things that not only is it in Canada's interest to be in on those discussions, but frankly, we have capabilities to bring to bear on it. Um, so I think there's there's a there's a discussion to be had, and I think actually, frankly, is being had right now on uh, potential inclusion in AUKUS Plus or AUKUS-related working groups, not necessarily being a, a part of the the trilateral discussion itself. The second important point, and maybe this is a good segue later to talk about the Five Eye, um, is I think that there's a bigger discussion. And again, AUKUS is not meant to replace the Five Eye, but uh, that frankly, there is a bigger discussion going on if we have three of the most, um, the key, uh, three of the key players within the Five Eye uh, having their own separate arrangement, even if it is premised on on nuclear submarines, but incorporates all sorts of other um, uh, sensitive discussions on, on defense technology, security, AI, etc. Um, does that leave us in a favorable place? And just to give you a sense, uh, Canada, we do bring some strong capabilities to bear within the Five Eye uh, grouping, but we're also more of a net beneficiary um, uh, of that agreement than um, than one who's who's uh, giving uh, much to our partners. Uh, there are areas, of course, where we we do provide. Um, value to our partners in the Five Eye. But I think this is a bigger worry for me, is that um, is AUKUS the beginning of a process where we feel that we are becoming more and more uh, a, a less privileged player within the Five Eye grouping? And that, I frankly, I frankly, is a concern that I do have. Uh, and I think that there are several um, that share that concern with me uh, in, in the security community in Canada. I think that's that's a really great point to segue across to a conversation about Five Eyes. But if I could just ask one sort of final uh, sort of question, which I think ties into that um, that sort of more exclusive grouping point that you've made there, Jonathan, is in terms of actual sort of funding and support for uh, sort of defense capabilities and budgets and such, is that something which is being given more consideration in Canada at the moment? I know in Australia. Obviously, in the context of the of the strategic review and AUKUS and such, there's there's clear uh, sort of financial pressures on on whether more money needs to be spent or whether we can spend it more efficiently or effectively within current allocations. What things are prioritised or or not? Um, are those kinds of questions uh, sort of live ones in Canada, or is things kind of just it's a bit of a status quo? Uh, have have the events in recent years in the Indo-Pacific sort of shaken anything loose from a political economic side or is it still a conversation that needs to be had? Well, I know that Paul is definitely going to have some thoughts on this um, and probably more informed thoughts on this, but um, let me just quickly uh, try to answer that. I think um, this is a longstanding discussion in Canada. Um, we've had the aspirational um, target and pledge, obviously, as a NATO member uh, to have 2% of GDP. We, you know, we can fixate on the on the two percent, but I think there's other discussions to be had in addition to two percent roles and responsibilities, the type of missions that you take on, the type of capabilities that you have. Um, 
but I think more broadly, um, there's a combination of two things. We've we've had the aspirations, but I think we've been malnourished for for several decades in many parts uh, of our military. Um, and I think that going back to the first question you asked about our strategic culture and our strategic outlook, um, and uh, I think Paul made some good points about how we have a favorable geography, even though sometimes we disagree with our neighbor to the south. Um, we often treat international security issues as uh, quote-unquote luxury items where uh, it's nice to play. We feel like it's a, it's a, it's uh, probably a good thing as a G7 country, as a NATO ally to, uh, to be involved, whether it's through peacekeeping or through other uh, coalitions. But do we really see it as existential to our security? And I think the answer has been no um, for several years. I think that perception is changing a little bit. And just to give you a, the Indo-Pacific, obviously we're talking about uh, – uh, today, but um, the Arctic uh, and uh, the, the focus on NORAD modernization is going to require significant financial resources, which we've started to um, commit to. Um, and then, of course, we've seen this in the Atlantic side as well now with uh, with a revanchist Russia, obviously uh, launching its uh, brutal prosecution of a war in Ukraine. Um, Canada now has reinforced uh, its battalion in Latvia. Um, which is meant to to reassure our uh, eastern flank allies in NATO. So we're seeing that rather than us feeling comfortable uh, in Fortress North America, now we have to be thinking very much on three different fronts about reassuring ourselves in defense terms. And those things cost cost money. So I think that it's a bit of both. I think that this has been a longstanding debate, but I think that the, the geopolitical situation on all corners for us has necessitated us getting really serious about uh, about you know refurbishing those capabilities. Yeah, I would add to that and completely agree because I think I would describe it as a strategic lethargy that Canada has been in uh, for 20, 25 years and then that kind of I think consistent underfunding, as Jonathan kind of alluded to there, in defense and defense infrastructure, really importantly, Jonathan mentioned NORAD um, modernization, which is a multi, multi-billion dollar enterprise. And these are what should should have been considered basic infrastructure things um, for for continental defense that have been kind of left to uh, to slip away. And now, obviously, everything costs a lot more to to build a new thing rather than uh, continuing to fix the old thing, although you know there are technical upgrades that needed to be done. So that is a huge investment that Canada is slowly now realizing that we have to make, and and I think we are making it. And that was very much led from the policy side to actually push that, and obviously our continental partner uh, um, did did uh, did did play a role in in prompting some of that. I think, but um, I think the important thing is to on the defense side is to look at the look at the commitments that are actually in the in the Indo-Pacific strategy um, on the defense side, because there are a number of, a number of good things. And the, I should also start with just saying what we have do in the region anyway, we generally have two Royal Canadian Navy frigates in, in the region um, over the course of a year. Last year, some fantastic work done by HMCS Vancouver, HMCS Winnipeg. And, uh, I think they went to, eight or nine different countries and port visits, multiple international or multinational exercises with regional partners from, from Japan to Australia and everywhere in between and, uh, and with ASEAN partners as well. Um, so that kind of naval diplomacy, I think we're, we're pretty good at and uh, we're, we're, we're getting a handle on kind of connecting the dots with our wider foreign policy issues on that. And this strategy will greatly help the Navy uh, to do that. 
Um, and also we mentioned the, the career linkage as well. We have an ongoing operation that we call Operation Neon to deploy ships and aircraft um, in support of the UN sanctions regime against North Korea. And these are these are real commitments of real capabilities that that are going to be increasingly stretched in the next few years as, uh, as our frigates start to age out and the Type 26, the future Canadian surface combatant, uh, is not, not online yet. Um, but I should mention that there will be an extra a third frigate in the region um, as committed to in, in this strategy that will actually come from our East Coast base um, in Halifax because obviously Canada's, ge- Canada's geography means we really have two separate fleets uh, on in Esquimalt and Victoria on the West Coast and Halifax on the East Coast. So it takes a couple of weeks to get between those two and you're either going through the Pan- Panama Canal or if you can get through the Arctic, which is it is quite rare. One of our ships did do that, do that last year, one of our new Arctic offshore patrol vessels. But uh, all to say is that that's, that's quite a, an unusual thing for countries that have such a divided uh, um, strategic naval uh, fleet. So the distance from, from Victoria um, into the region is still a couple of weeks sail time. And from Halifax, it's even further. I think there's a, the equidistant point is somewhere around Sri Lanka. If you had a ship leave Esquimalt and one leave for Halifax, going at the same speed, they would arrive in Sri Lanka kind of around the same time. So it is possible for those East Coast fleet, fleet ships to to actually come into the, into the Indo-Pacific region and into East Asia as well. So I think that will be a great addition having a third a third ship to do the interoperability piece and the, and the hard-edged exercises, but also the presence and the diplomatic um, diplomatic work that navies do so well. And I think it will be appreciated and noted, but it has to become reality. And, th- th- there's, and there's real funding in the strategy for that identified. The strategy also talks about increased, part- increased participation in regional exercises, um, and we need to get our army and air force more involved in the region because, as I say, it's kind of a more natural maritime environment. So our Navy's been doing a lot of the heavy lifting, but our army and air force and Special Operations Command have have signaled an interest to do more. So exercises like Cobra Gold in Thailand, for example, and the Garuda Shield in Indonesia and Talisman Sabre Australia and all of the various um, um, exercises we, we do with Japan will continue and hopefully will step up and bring a more Canadian Armed Forces angle to that rather than it necessarily just being the Navy or the Air Force or the Army. Um, there's also capacity building programs uh, that can be increased in the region um, that probably would focus more on Southeast Asia, obviously, and and building good partnerships there. I think there's a, a good piece to be done in the women, peace and security area as well. That Canada has a particular focus on in our wider foreign policy Um and also there's, a, there's various cyber uh, initiatives that have specific funding. Um, and finally, some defense, uh, civilian defense policy positions. So people like me in the region, should you wish to, should you wish that to happen? Um, I think, because I think that's something extra we need in our, in our uh, missions in the region is just simply increasing the footprint. I think as maybe we alluded to earlier that generally Canada's, um, uh, not only Canadian forces, but also our diplomatic footprint is is just too sparse across the region. We just do not have the bodies in our missions to really do the full job, especially on the security and defense side. Our, our, our defense attaches do incredible work, um, but generally they're, they're one and two and threes in the, in the various embassies and high commissions across the region. So so it's it's really a matter of in, in increasing the resources in the region and and I think that 
an increase in defence funding that was uh, signalled in the budget, I think, in April of, of last year, um, of, I think, $8 billion over, over five years. And our defence budget, I think, runs at around $20, $21 billion, Canadian dollars, a year. So that's not insubstantial funding, but, of course, we have to see the reality because, obviously, as we all know, in the in the uh, March and April of last year, everybody was promising massive defense spending increases because of the Russia Ukraine situation. But let's see the the hardcore financial reality when when we actually get there, because there's a lot of very difficult choices to make for governments. I think that's that's very reminiscent of some of the uh, approaches that Australia has taken lately. Uh, in that I think back to so when I was last in defense, maybe sort of five years ago, to where we are now in terms of those. Some civilian positions that you mentioned, Paul. There's there's different ways to um, have regional presence beyond um, sort of ships and planes and such, which of course are important and are sort of the the fundamental um, building blocks of a of a defence force. But there are more, there are other options too, and I think it's interesting to see how how that plays out um, has played out in our instance and and may in the Canadian too. I would just make one addition to that because I think one of the fundament, fundamental things we need to improve is is just getting more expertise on the region and in the region. Jonathan is a notable example of actually a, a fairly high-profile Canadian who is actually known in this region. There are very few people like that. Our, our old friend, Dr. Jim Boutillier, who was a special advisor in the Royal Canadian Navy on the West Coast, was one of a handful of Canadians who could probably walk into a room from New Delhi to Tokyo to uh, Wellington to to Fiji and and be known and be recognized as Canadian and having a legitimate voice on security and defense issues. We really just don't have the, the expertise and the high-profile um, people actually making an impact on, on the arguments in this area. So I, I think we need to do a lot better in, uh, in growing that, that, that capability and, and, and really increase those kind of people-to-people ties. I might just sort of turn back to you, Jonathan, for what I think will be our our last uh, sort of topic for our conversation today, which is um, the 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 point around Five Eyes that you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, and that this is a it's an intelligence sharing framework that uh, our two countries have been part of, along with the US, the UK, and New Zealand for all oh, sort of five decades or so now, uh, and the last. The, the previous coalition government in Australia was uh, quite keen to seem to expand the, not necessarily the formal remit, but the, the different things that were, were covered under the um, the rhetorical umbrella of Five Eyes. There were a lot of uh, statements put out by sort of our five foreign ministries or, or other groups like that. Um, and predating that, there are also non-intelligence five-country partnerships on things like um, law enforcement, border control, immigration, um, the attorneys general meet together. I think there was a treasury one recently as well. So there are more five power meetings than just the intelligence, but the intelligence sharing remains at the core of that relationship. Um, but my sense is that the the Labor government in Australia has been um, and is less interested in using the five eyes in that way that the coalition government was. Um, and to take another example, the the New Zealand Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta um, has, on record, many times said that she doesn't. She's uncomfortable with expanding the remit of Five Eyes. So it's interesting. I'd be interested to know, uh, Jonathan, from your insights in in Canada, what uh, 
how, how I guess how is Five Eyes viewed? What what what's the relationship between um, sort of political and and policy perspectives in Canada and um, the use of Five Eyes as a as a wider instrument as well as um, the the stance on it as an intelligence sharing organization? Well, it's a great question. I think there's sort of a couple answers to it. Um, you know, from a public perception um, vantage point, I think Five Eye as still is a very opaque, um, you know, maybe you talk to 20 people in a room and, and one person might know, or maybe maybe zero people would know uh, from a regular population perspective. Um, uh, I think that that's changing a little bit, and I'd probably not unique only to Canada. I think you know Five Eye was, uh, I mean, even the acronym itself wasn't wasn't very common knowledge for for several years. Um, within government circles, I think um, there is differing views on this. I think there's an understanding, and again, you mentioned uh, New Zealand's perspective on this. There's an understanding that Five Eye uh, itself. Um, and its origin uh, largely was through signals intelligence. And, you know, it's one of the main things, obviously, that Five Eye continues to do and, and does well. Um, but the sort of geostrategic realities and the evolution of, of the five partners, if we frame it that way, has has evolved immensely, and I think you listed just a few of them. Uh, whether it's you know a border uh, immigration, um, a treasury, uh, you know commerce departments, foreign ministries, there's so many gatherings there, and I think in an increasingly uncertain. Um, geostrategic landscape, it's more important to be working very closely with your friends. Um, and on that point, I, th- I would say that I was very happy to see in the Indo-Pacific strategy that f- that the Five Eyes actually was specifically noted. So this is something that was not downplayed or sort of inconvenient to put in the strategy, but was recognized that there's very few countries that we share, you know, I won't say perfectly, but we sell- share very close strategic interests with on a range of different issues. And, and we can trust. Um, so I think that's one in, important point. On expansion, and I think this is interesting too, um, you know, the Five Eye, like uh, a lot of our domestic intelligence um, agencies and the way that we've had to think about these country by country, um, it's had to evolve to evolving threats. So, um, of course, after the Cold War, there was a shift and we were in the fragile states period. Uh, 9-11 was a significant shift, obviously, for the intelligence communities to to focus on counterterrorism. And now we are seeing this shift that's several years in the process now back to a great power competition. And I think that this is a combination, obviously, um, uh, of mainly uh, uh, combating uh, China, but also uh, looking at some of the challenges that, of course, Russia is posing. Um, and one sort of, you know, last point on this to, to note is that we need to strengthen partnerships outside of the Five Eye that can help us on both of those issues. Uh, and I would note, uh, as it pertains to Russia, for, for example, uh, you do a search of our Indo-Pacific strategy, there is zero mentioning of Russia uh, in our Indo-Pacific strategy. I think that's a mistake. Um, Russia, uh, you know, maybe have its hands full, obviously, um, through its own misdeeds in Ukraine, uh, but still is a Pacific nation, still can be a spoiler. Um, We're seeing the growth in in Russia and uh, Chinese um, naval exercises and other sorts of uh, coordination. So that's one thing that I think we need to be vigilant on. 
And as it relates to China, I think we need to diversify our partnerships as the Five Eye Group um, with those key uh, partners uh, in the region. Of course, Japan and South Korea are, are two of the most natural partners outside of the Five Eyes that I, I think that we need to strengthen cooperation with. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Five Eyes become seven or six. I think we all know there's all sorts of reasons why that's complicated. Um, but I think that those collaborations, which already frankly exist, like the Five Eye Plus dialogues that uh, that you know might not get, get as much attention, but already are in existence, need to be taken to the next level. So um, where can we learn and mitigate our risks the most uh, in the Indo-Pacific? It's going to be through working much more closely with uh, the Japans and the South Koreas. And it may be uncomfortable for some to discuss publicly, but also Taiwan in case-to-case case-by-case situations. So I think that's the direction that the Five Eye needs to go, is get a lot more creative um, um, with, uh, with the way it approaches things. I'll throw to you for the final word, Paul. I would agree with everything that Jonathan said there. I think for Canada, it's very important to keep the focus on Five Eyes as that intelligence um, um, apparatus that is critical for the Canadian Armed Forces and our intelligence and security services. Um, and it's it, it, losing that access and losing that pool of, of resources and skills and, and information would be would be very damaging to our uh, capabilities. So I would always seek to keep it uh, to that kind of that level of yes, this is an intelligence uh, analysis collection uh, organization that between like-minded countries with very close historical ties um of course there are linkages that we can kind of use to uh, to springboard from that and there have been i believe various linkages as you as you say kind of based on the, on the, on the, on the five countries just because they're very like-minded and obviously english language is is a big part of that as well um so i i would agree that it's not necessarily oh that's let's just invite Japan or France to join like I, there are other mechanisms that we already work with those countries and and can share um, sensitive information of various kinds. So it's not as if, you know, there's a button you can switch on and suddenly yeah, we can speak to the Japanese or the Koreans or whoever about certain things. There, 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 there are linkages that are, that are already there. And I, and I think Jonathan kind of alludes to the fact that I don't think we need huge new institutions. I don't think that is where we're looking at now. And the, the trend in the region is calling kind of more of those looser alignments and call them mini, mini laterals or whatever you want that you don't need the shiny headquarters building with a multi-billion dollar budget and thousands of people working in it because I, 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 we just don't have the capacity to put people there. I think that's a lot of New Zealand's issue. It's like, well, we only have this big a defense force or government. So we just, you know, we, we just couldn't even show up to every meeting. So it's those kind of capabilities that, uh, capacities that are actually very important to think about rather than rather than just thinking oh yes let's just get together i would i would add just from a political standpoint i think that the conservative party of canada should they should they come into power see, seem to have been kind of flirting with the idea of five eyes in a bit more of a cultural social sense i think even in their last manifesto i may be wrong um they actually kind of looked at uh, work visas and and making it easier to work and travel between certainly Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Um, so that's an interesting wrinkle. There's there's various ideological reasons behind that. I think for the Conservative Party, but I think should they come into power, which is 
perfectly plausible in the next year or two, for better or worse. Um, you might see a more a more focus on Five Eyes um, issues, and 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 the government try to push a little bit uh, the Five Eyes in various different directions. Well, we'll uh, we'll leave you with that that teaser from Paul there. So watch this space on on Five Eyes in the Canadian government down the track. But uh, no, thank you both very much for for all your time today, uh, for your insights, and and for this. Well, I found very engaging conversation. So thank you, Paul, and thank you, Jonathan. Thanks a lot. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, David.